The following content has been provided by New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. For more information, visit us online at www.nsa.edu. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. You pour out your blessings all around us. I thank you for the year that's before us and for these students. I pray you bless our time and bless uh, us now as we consider your promises to us and your charges to us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So, I look at my first heading. And my, my, my first section here is just labeled, Things Are Bad. That sort, of, that sort of says it all. There's just no getting around it right now. The very obvious fact that uh, things look bad for uh, the church in America. I'm reminded um, of was an old Steve Martin movie. I think it was Roxanne, uh, um, his own version of the Cyrano de Bergerac story. And there's a bit where he's walking down the street and he sees the, the newspaper um, machine and he puts in his 50 cents to get a newspaper out. He pulls it out, he looks at the headline and he screams. And then he puts 50 more cents in and opens it to put the newspaper back and then keep on walking down the road. I think that really pretty much sums up the way I approach the news uh, most mornings uh, these days. I, I don't know, as you look at uh, the presidential election before us, if there's really, um, you know, I, I don't know which one would be worse. In, in all actuality, in all honesty, I'm not sure how it can work out uh, to be good in this upcoming election. Um, but far, far more terrifying than the um, political situation has been um, what I would describe as, as a basic shift or uh, crumbling in the average American's basic moral compass. There's this, there's this um, it's been a long, slow slide, so it's not this sudden thing, but I think we're, um, we're suddenly kind of realizing how far we've gone. Um, it's, not, it's not just uh, that the leadership in Washington, D.C. is immoral, and it's not just that immorality is flourishing all around us. It is that this immorality has reached a critical mass that is now skewing our ability to be a part of the public discourse. Have you noticed that? The way everything has shifted so much where now it's not just that you disagree with the public discourse, it's you really don't have a place in it or it's increasingly difficult for you to have a place in that conversation. The Christian position is not just disagreed with or disregarded. The faithful Christian position is now considered hateful and not to be tolerated. Right? At one point you might have been a part of the discussion and now I don't know that you can even be a part of the discussion without being in some way um, branded as a criminal. Um, I would not say that the America of my youth was a, a Christian nation. I grew up in a post-Roe v. Wade world, so clearly we were well down the path of moral apostasy. The culture was going in a bad direction already. But still, there was a substantial inertia to the ethical system of Christianity that lingered. There was still a, a culture that you could still identify with, even though the gospel that, that, that is um, responsible for creating that culture, that was fading or its influence was fading. You still could taste the culture all around you. Um, and so it, it, it still dominated in a lot of places, especially I grew up in southern Idaho, which is very sort of uh, conservative, uh, red state America. Um, and so you, you, even though people didn't have the faith system that produced the culture we lived in, the culture was still one that resonated uh, with Christianity. Um, it still dominated in some way in the American public sphere. 
Um, 25 years ago, let me give, give an example. 25 years ago, if your, your non-Christian uh, neighbor's marriage, let's say their marriage was breaking up, and there was a, there was a problem there, and let's say they're not, they're not Christians, they don't have the gospel in their life, yet still there was something understood that, that they would want this marriage, that it's something that should be restored, that it would be something worth trying to put back together. And if you could articulate how the Christian faith is this foundation that actually produces healthy marriages, there was something great about that. There was something that was appreciated about that. They, they might have rejected the gospel itself, but they still wanted the fruit of it. They still wanted to see what it could produce and they wanted to experience that. But you notice how now um, the fruit itself is an insult, right? Your definition of marriage, your definition of the good life is itself a public offense and an insult. Right? The, the culture that, you, that you're creating is offensive. Think of, think of this. If David Daladin's videos, which came out over the last year, um, if those had surfaced 25 years ago, I don't know that it would have caused Roe v. Wade to be overturned. I don't know that it would have just suddenly, you know, overthrown um, uh, the um, freedom for abortion. I don't think it would have done that. However, it certainly would have resulted in significant measures against Planned Parenthood. It, it would have resulted in something, and it may be something that was, um, it may have just been a gesture, but that's easily, that's the direction all the pressure would have gone. Um, now, though, in the last year when it happened, what, what ended up happening was David Daladin himself was uh, charged as a criminal and the director for Planned Parenthood, uh, Cecily Richards, was invited to be the speaker at the Democratic National Convention. Right, that, that's just, just a crazy turn of events, the way things have shifted there. And I could go on for a while listing different ways that we see this, this slide into apostasy playing out in our culture. And again, note, it's not just the permission of immorality around us that I'm pointing at. Immorality has always been permitted. It's the disallowing of a faithful witness against this immorality that, it, that we are increasingly up against. You're not allowed to say anything about it. You can't get on the stage and rebut it. You can't debate it. You're, you're, going, to be, um, you're going to be criminalized if you say something about it, as Daladin was. The American public is increasingly so at odds with Christianity that a public expression of your faith is starting to border on criminal. Now, I say that because think for a moment about the mission that NSA has. All right? Think about the charge that we have, which is um, our goal is to graduate leaders who shape culture living faithfully under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what we're charged to do with you, to teach you to be leaders of cultures. You go out from NSA, you're going to shape and influence culture under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But here's, here's the question to, to put before you, because this is a real challenge. How do you shape culture if the fact that you live under the lordship of Jesus Christ is offensive to the world? How, how do you shape culture if the culture that you have to bring to the world is in and of itself offensive, something that they are going to be, um, uh, that they're going to reject and be offended by? How do you share and spread and advance a culture that no one wants? It's like you're going door to door holding a skunk, right? With the, with the rear end up, knocking on the doors, trying to sell this. It's, it's not a winning sales strategy, right? You're, you're not gonna get very far. So how do, you, how do you sit and like, well, what is it we're teaching you to do? How are we teaching you to advance a culture? Are we teaching you how to dress it up some different way and sneak it in so that nobody knows what it is that you're selling? 
Uh, that, that's going to be a compromised um, way forward. That's not going to work. But if you're straightforward with this is what uh, godly culture looks like and everybody is rejecting it, then what hope do we have for this mission? doesn't seem like we have a winning strategy there. Okay, now, so that was very grim and depressing, right? Set that aside for just a moment. <laughs> Set it totally aside. I'll come back to that in just a moment, but I, but I, wanted, I just want to at least put that before you is this is, not, um, this is not an easy thing. This is not just a gimme, all right? You actually have a really significant challenge in front of you, and the mission that this college has, has um, aimed itself at is a very difficult mission. So let, let's, we're going to come back to that question in a little bit. I want to move to um, a bit of Bible study. I want to go to John chapter 17, and, and I want to speak for a moment about the power of a word. Okay, the power of a word. This is, I hope, an obvious subject for students uh, such as yourselves who measure the pain inflicted on yourselves week in and week out by page counts and word counts. Right? Your life is a life of words, and so I want to talk about the power of a word. Your lives now are lives of words piled on words, but I'd like to focus specifically on something that starts to develop in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. So I'm in John 17. If you have a Bible or a phone where you can turn there, I'm going to be jumping around just a little bit. In this extended prayer, the bulk of John 17 is just Christ's prayer to his Father. Um, as he does this, he, he summarizes uh, to the Father the mission that he has already come and accomplished on the earth. He walks through what it is that he has achieved, what it is he has accomplished. And then at the end of the prayer, he sort of turns to describing what he has passed on to the church and what the church is left to accomplish after his ascension into heaven, what we're charged to be doing. And, he, and it's this great moment. It's, it's really fun because you see this moment where Jesus, the son, specifically prays to the father for you. He names uh, the future saints and he prays for the future saints to his father. And in this section, what I want to do is I want to focus on his description of a word and its power just reading a few excerpts from this prayer. So I'm going to be um, jumping through, and I'm noting everywhere where he's, where he's describing a word. Obviously, we're in the book of John. Um, that logos, the, the, the word word, is this important theme that you'll see throughout. It starts with, in the beginning was the word. Uh, the word was with God. The word was God. Uh, and then you're going to see that logos coming again and again. Well, well Jesus is going to mention this word a few times here. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 8. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them by your, by your truth. Your word is truth. And verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you, if you trace that, his use of the word, word, throughout uh, John 17, you'll see this kind of trajectory for his understanding of, of the word and what it does and what it will do. And I want to just walk through and flesh that out a little bit, what it is that he's saying is going to happen with the word. 
Now, as I mentioned, we're in the book of John, so, so it starts off by telling us that Jesus is the Word, all right? He is the Son, He is the Word, who, was, who is eternal, was eternally with the Father, and has been sent to this world to, on, on a mission. And in verse, verse 8, the one that I just read to you, I'll, I'm going to go back through those as, as we work through this, um, this section, all right? He starts to describe how He has come as the Word, and what He has done is deliver God the Father's words to us. I have given them the words which you have given me. Verse 8. Verse 14. I have given them your word. So he was the word and he came to give us the word. Right? He, he, and what better messenger for the word than the word itself. Christ himself was the word of God. But as the word of God he delivered to us the word of God. He did this when he came and taught through the Old Testament. And his teaching then became the content of the New Testament. Look at John 14. I'll read verses 9 and 10. Do you not believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Jesus came to take the word of the Father and deliver it over to us, to, to reveal the Father to us through this word. And that, that means that as he is preaching through Scripture, what he is doing is delivering the Word to us and revealing the Father. Christ was himself the Word of God, revealing the Word of God. Think, think about that for a moment then. That means that as Christ is sitting with his disciples, walking through Genesis, telling the story of Abraham and explaining what was going on there, as he's walking through Isaiah and describing the prophecies of the Old Testament and how they're coming to a culmination in him, as he's walking through the prayers of David and showing how these were pointing forward to the Messiah, as he's walking through doing these Bible studies, he's accomplishing something profound. He actually at that moment is taking the word from the Father and delivering it to us. And he says that as he gives that word to us, he actually opens up and reveals and shows the Father to us. It's a really kind of striking thing to think that you could be sitting there in a Bible study with somebody walking through a text and at that moment something profoundly spiritual is happening. You are having the, you're having the Heavenly Father revealed and showed to you, placed right before you. The invisible God was made visible. He was set before the disciples when Jesus walked them through the text. There is an actual power to the word of God, a power to reveal to the reader the immortal, invisible God. Right? There is, there's an actual power as he walks through that text where something profoundly spiritual has happened. The immortal, invisible God is being made present to them. He's manifesting God to them. Now, you, you keep going. Uh, this encounter with God through his word is not just a one-time thing that happened. It's not just there was one moment where suddenly they, he revealed God to them and they saw the Father. For those who receive the word of God from Christ continue to hold on to it. It becomes a daily thing. John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. There's a holding on to it where you're coming back to it daily and it's starting to define your life for you. John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. All right, when you come to his word daily, you're becoming his disciple. Um, it, 
whether you're, whether you're captivated by this word or not, whether you're captured by it and have it surrounding you, it starts to become an indicator whether or not someone is a Christian, whether or not they really belong to the Father. 1 John 2.5, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. This, this is how you know that you are held by God is when you're held by his word, when you're captivated by his word. Look at John 14, verses 23 through 24. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Right? So this, this word reveals the Father to us, but as we, as we are captivated by it, it, it demonstrates who we belong to. It demonstrates that that the Father is not just the Father, He's actually your Father. He's our Father. He belongs to us and we belong to Him. So there is a message, a word, right? A, a written word, a spoken word that you could come to and read and hear that Jesus delivered to us from the Father. And this message causes us to know the Father, reveals a God to you, the God who made the whole world, reveals Him to you. And this message became something that we daily cling to, that we come back to again and again and hold on to. However, you should note Jesus promised that we would not cling to this word without a cost. Look at verse 14. Um, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. See, as you become captivated by this word, you become remade into something that is alien to this world and it causes a necessary antithesis. Right, when you receive God's word, it sets you up in a certain place to be hated. Uh, there is a necessary antithesis that then flows from receiving the word. Now, the reason we keep the word, though, is because actually the word keeps us. Right? We grab the word because the word has grabbed a hold of us. Listen to verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What is it that is making you different from the world so that you're hated by the world? so that you're hated by the world. It is God's word working in your life to sanctify you, to cleanse you, to wash you, to set you apart and make you different. All right, it makes, it makes you different and that's why the antithesis happens. But the power is from the word, not from you. This is something it does to you. Look at John uh, 15, three. You are, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You hear that? So when, when Jesus speaks this word to you, you become clean. Do you, do you see how bizarre this really is? I mean, we, we look at, um, it, if, if you were to not put this in a Christian context, and you were to just describe this generically, we're talking about something that is magic, right? We're talking about a book and a set of words that when you read, you cause things to happen. It's like you're casting spells of some sort. But this is far deeper than that and far, uh, far more profound than some sort of trivial magic trick. It's a word that changes the world. How do, you, how do you account for this? How can you make sense of this? As Christians, we can grow too, too accustomed to the truth of all, uh, all this that we start to forget how bizarre these claims are. You actually believe, and you need to realize this, look at this from somebody else's perspective for a moment, how weird you are. All right? If you could step out for a moment and just look at yourself and see how bizarre this is that you think this. Okay? Uh, you actually believe that there is a written text that you can study in a certain way such that the invisible creator of the universe becomes manifested to you. 
so that you begin to look at the immortal, invisible God. You believe that in giving yourself to this word, by putting faith in its promise, you are purified, sanctified, set apart, made holy. Right? That's what you believe. In other words, you actually believe that this word has an incredible power in your life to redeem and transform you. That's what you hold to. There's this message that does this. Now, I want to note one more thing, one more place where Jesus uses the word word in, first, in uh, chapter uh, 17 of John. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in my name through their word. Read that again. I do not pray for these alone, referring to his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. For those that will believe through their word. Notice that he does not say through my word. Are those who will believe in me through my word. He says, I'm, I'm praying for those who are going to pray through their word. These people are going to go out and speak the word that I have been speaking I've been speaking this word and causing this um, incredible change, and I'm handing it over to them with the expectation that they, this word becomes theirs, and they will go out and speak it. And when they go out and speak it, it will say, have the same profound effect as when I am speaking it. All right, do you see that transition that has happened, where this is something projecting um, into the future, where it's transferring from the sun to the church with an expectation that the church is to wield the same message? We have not merely been given a powerful word to transform our lives. That's not the only thing that has happened. We have been given a powerful word that we are trusted to go and declare to the world. Um, and through the declaration of that divinely powerful word to transform the world. It doesn't just go from the Father to the Son, the Son to you. It's now commanded for you to take out and go to the world. Romans 10, 17, so, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, all right? This weird thing that you believe that God does to you through the word is actually an expectation that you're to go out and cast the same spell, right? You're supposed to take this and go and exert it. So the power that's worked on you, you're supposed to now work on the world. So go back to my original question. How do you go out and transform culture when, when the truth, goodness, and beauty that we say that we're producing is in and of itself going to be offensive to the world. Well, I, don't, I honestly don't know how you can do that. I don't, I don't see how you can have somebody who is allergic to peanut butter and go and say, hey, I really think you ought to try this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> right? They are just disposed to despise it. And, it, and it's not going to be something that you're going to somehow talk them through this clever way of tricking them into liking something that they don't like. Um, so how are you going to make them um, come to this culture? How are you going to be leaders in culture? You do it first and foremost by converting them. Right? You do it first and foremost by making them into a new creation so that this culture is something they love that's coming out of their hearts. What power do you possibly have to make the biblical teaching on marriage palatable to a world that is disgusted by it? How do you go and make that cool, right? Is there some Instagram, you know, filter that you can put on it? And it's like, oh, no, now, now I get it. Heterosexual, ah, that's good, All right? There, there's, there's not some way where you can just spin this to make this 
palatable, and that's not your job. So when we say you're to be shapers of culture, it's not your job to do like a PR campaign for the faith. You can't, how do you possibly promote the sanctity of life in a culture that is obsessed with death, right? How are you gonna do that? How are you gonna make people love life when they are lovers of death? How do you sell a Christian vision for the true, the good, and the beautiful to a world that despises Christ, right? You, you receive the word, and it sets you at antithesis with the world. So how are you going to suddenly remove that antithesis? The word was designed to create that antithesis. You do this by speaking the powerful word that God gave to you for just this reason. You do it by speaking this word to them as Christ has commanded us. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. How do you get them to like this? Will you give them the gospel? That is the power of God to make this um, change, to have this effect. The word is a sword, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6. It's a powerful weapon for just this moment. The word changes the world. And it's not just something that God wields on us. It's something that we are expected to then go and wield on the world. And the power it is exerted on us, we are expected to go and exert on the world. So I want to give you um, a brief charge to conclude this. Students, you've not just been summoned to come and listen. All right? You're not told to just come and listen to the lectures. You're not told to just come and sit and read the stack of books. You're not just here to receive and receive and receive. The change that was worked in you by the word is a change that you are charged to work in others with the word. You're supposed to take this and then exert it, live it out. So come and listen, but then go and declare. You come and listen, you come and and it all comes inside of you, but you've got to learn to go and declare, go and speak. You, as a generation of Christians, will only be successful as leaders of culture insofar as you learn to declare the gospel to a world that hates Christ. And I have to say, what a blessing that is. What a fantastic privilege that is. And there is, there is a, an actual kind of luxury here, and that is that there's such clarity, right? There are lots of little rabbit trails that people can be easily distracted on, but you're going to find that faithfulness has become more and more to a point. It's going to be more and more straightforward. And there's a bit of a blessing to that because you're going to see more and more that really comes down to telling people about Jesus, letting them know about his victory over sin, death, and the devil. The fact that he rose again on the third day and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. A key part of this education, the education you're receiving here at NSA, is the fact that we constantly require you to speak. I hope you notice that, and that's something that I think is just so essential to the pedagogy of what we're doing, is that we want you to be able to speak. We, we, we give you lots of reading. I know that we give you lots of reading, and you sit through a lot of lectures, but we want you learning how to project, how to project your voice back out from, ble- from the declamation to the recitation presentations, when you've got to present your mini paper and your history project, when you've got to stand up and speak to the oral finals, to your senior thesis. At each of these steps, we're asking you to get up and speak, to get up and declare. And this is such an important part of what it means to be a faithful Christian. We want you to speak. 
But most of all, we want you to learn to declare the gospel, to, to say this is what it is. This word is what changes the world. We want you to be able to speak that. What else are you going to declare to a world that is dead in its sin, that is a slave to unrighteousness? What other tools do you have to bring about anything worthwhile? What can you come up with to persuade this world that loves death other than this living word? This is the only thing that's going to do it. It's the only thing. And so that's what you need to be focusing on. That's what you need to be practicing. Students, you must come to trust that the gospel is a powerful message. Right? All, all that weirdness that I was just describing where it's almost like a spell that is cast. Right? You need to come, and see, come to see that and understand the power of the word so that when you find yourself in that difficult position, you understand the thing you need to go to is to just say the word, preach the word, speak the word, declare the gospel. You must come to trust that the gospel is a powerful message. God's word was spoken into darkness and it created light. That's how it all began. God's word spoke into darkness and created light. His word was spoken into pagan Rome, a dark, dark place, and it created light. At one time, and it may have been when you were two years old or who knows, it was spoken into your dark hearts, right? Maybe it was just a two-year-old dark heart, but it was dark, right? And God's word spoke into your dark heart and it created light. The necessary precondition for God's word to be effective for God's word to shine light is simply a world of darkness. That's all it takes for it to work. The precondition has clearly been met all around you. It's, it's all around you. It's a dark world. So your impulse ought to be to go to light, to speak the light. The precondition has been met, so speak his word. It is not something that he just expects you to listen to. It's something he expects you to turn and declare it. Now, this education, what, what we're giving you now, is intended to, you, to give you great breadth in your declaration of the gospel. I hope, I hope that you can see that. Um, you should see that the gospel is declared in poetry, song, feasting, family, work, and countless other places. We want you to see the breadth of the gospel and how many places you can go to speak the gospel. We don't want a truncated gospel, a gospel for just a sliver of your life. We want it to be broad because it will be more powerful if it's like that. It's for all of life, for all of the world. And that's why you're studying in this, this broad uh, liberal arts curriculum. We want you to see the breadth of the gospel. But be clear about this. No worthwhile culture transformation will be possible without the formal declaration of the gospel. That's what we want to make sure that we're going back to again and again. And remember in this, that, that speaking this word is what Christ himself prayed for you. He prayed to the Father for you, asking that you would be able to do this, and that as you did it, the blessing of the Holy Spirit would be on you, making it powerful and effective. I'm closing prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I do pray for these students. Lord, we know that we face um, increasing pressures and tensions and difficulties before us. I know that the generation that is the students now will be facing uh, in increasing uh, difficulties and resistance for your word. But I pray that you be making them, goal, goal, making them bold. I pray that you would be shining your light into their hearts and that they'd be seeing the truth and the power of the gospel and that they would be bold in proclaiming it. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you very much and blessings on your year.
New St. Andrews College thanks you for listening.